Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galson of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle. Welcome, one and all. Well, we had a very active Supreme Court term that ended last week. We had a chance to discuss it a little bit, but it pays, I think, to pay a little bit more attention to some of those decisions, in particular, the decision in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard, the decision that strikes down race preferences. Linda, I'm going to start with you. One thing that people frequently get wrong about affirmative action is that they see it in straight black and white terms in all senses of that phrase. That is, they see it as advantages either going to African-American or white Americans. But of course, the whole point of this case against Harvard was that the minority group that was most victimized by this policy was Asians. That's exactly right. And by the way, that's not unusual. In most of the institutions that have very strict admission standards where it's very, very competitive, Asian students fare the worst under affirmative action programs. And Harvard's case was particularly egregious. Harvard jumped through all sorts of hoops to try to ensure that they could come up with a class that had more Blacks and fewer Asians than would have been admitted if it was simply on the basis of their grades and test scores. And they actually devised a variety of factors. One of them was they rated students on their personalities. And lo and behold, Asian students came up uh, not having very good personalities, according to the interviewers at Harvard. Surprisingly often. Yes, often. Yes, very, very (laughs) often. But it really was not until they actually gave specifically attention to race that they could bring those numbers down. And that's what they did. And it obviously hurt Asian students. And by the way, I mean, it's not as if Asians have not faced significant systemic discrimination in the United States. They were prevented from entering the United States. The Chinese Exclusion Act was our first anti-immigrant law in the 19th century. They were prevented from becoming citizens all the way up until really right around the time of, of World War II. And they were finally granted the right to become citizens because we wanted to ensure Chinese help in the war. And so anti-Asian discrimination was not considered a very good thing. So this was really a terrible case. I think the court got it exactly right. You know, I think there are some what I consider sort of silly debates going on right now about whether or not it should have been judged only on statutory grounds under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which forbids discrimination on the basis of race, or whether they should have gone all the way and and done it on constitutional grounds. And of course, that's what they ended up doing. You know, it seems to me that this was the right decision. It is going to mean that there will be fewer Black and Latino students at some of the most elite schools. 
But the fact is the kids who get into schools and perhaps go to a school one tier down from what they would have been admitted to under affirmative action will end up faring better. They're more likely to graduate and they will be competing with students who have similar grades and test scores. So I think it was a good thing. Uh, Megan, following up on Linda's point, one of the things that defenders of this decision and opponents of affirmative action point out is that the schools, for their own reasons, tend to focus on the admitted class rather than on the percentage of students who graduate. And the Black graduation rate is 43% compared to the white graduation rate of 63%. And people who don't graduate from college are frequently still saddled with loans that have to be repaid, but they don't have the diploma that will give them the extra earning power. So it does consign people to more, arguably, to more hardship than is necessary. And, And I'd like you to respond to one other thing that that is true of the system that has now been declared unconstitutional, namely it gave an advantage to people who were already privileged. So for example, at Harvard, 71% of the African-American and Hispanic students that they admitted came from families in the top 20% of the income distribution. So in the name of diversity, they the, the argument goes, they were accepting a lot of people who may have had different skin colors, but basically came from the same class, the same tier of society. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think, you know, there is a defense of affirmative action, the diversity defense, which I think can actually be made colorable. Uh, One example that was given to me is, look, if the top thousand students were French, they wouldn't want to admit just a thousand French people. Because, you know, the reason French students come to America is not to go to school with other French people. And that actually, they're in many ways trying to craft a well-rounded class. They want oboe players for the band. They want athletes. They want all of these things. Now, you can argue about whether that's how colleges should work. It's not how they work everywhere, but it is how an American university works. And that is, I think, probably the best defense you can make of the way that Harvard was practicing affirmative action, which is was, was some pretty invidious discrimination against Asians, it looks like. That said, the part of the problem is that they then undercut that by using these quite crude racial categories. If anyone has read David Bernstein's excellent book on the history of racial classification in the United States, we take it for granted, but in fact, it's ad hoc and bizarre. Right. It, you know, so someone from Spain is lumped in with Hispanics everywhere. And yet people from Brazil are not necessarily considered Hispanic because they don't speak Spanish. You know, you can kind of argue that Spanish and Portuguese are the same language, but I wouldn't want to do that in the same room with a Spaniard or a Portuguese <laughs> person. So an Afghan is white, but a Pakistani born five miles away across the border is Asian. None of this really makes a ton of sense. It's all a lot to do with kind of historical lobbying groups, Middle Eastern, for example, arguably a a valid category in the way that we think about these things, but was complicated because then Jewish people could claim it and that sort of killed it politically. They select on these very, very contingent categories and then they don't select on things like economic diversity or ideological diversity. And that makes it, in fact, they often select against ideological diversity where conservative kids feel, and I think not unfairly, that they are disadvantaged in this process in a lot of ways. Another example of of how this actually happens, and one that I'm not as uncomfortable with, most colleges, not Harvard, but most colleges now practice affirmative action for boys. 
because if the percentages get too low, there's a sense that girls don't want to go there, right? If it's 70% girls, it then becomes harder to recruit girls. So I went to one liberal arts college that told me that you have about twice as good a chance of getting in as a boy with a given set of grades as a girl. But that does create, as you say, Mona, follow-on issues, which is it's not that big an issue for Harvard. Harvard's Black students graduate pretty much the same rate as their white and Asian students, and that rate is like 97%. But Harvard's selection then creates pressures at like the institutions right below them, right, where they have a bigger gap. And those students don't have the same level of academic preparedness often. And then that creates real struggles. They may switch from, say, STEM to a major that is easier, like English. I'm, I was an English major. I'm perfectly comfortable saying it's a lot easier than calculus. And whereas if they had been at a school where they were nearer to the top of the class, they might well have stayed in STEM, gone on to be engineers. And then that creates recruiting problems for employers. So there, there's a lot going on here that I think is been reduced to a like, are you bigoted against minorities or are you not? And I think it's so much more of a complicated question than that. Yeah. By the way, just to underline the point you just made, if you look at historically Black colleges and universities, they enroll only about 10% of African-American undergraduates, and yet they produce 19% of STEM graduates. 50% of Black lawyers and doctors, and 80% of Black judges, which tells you something. Damon, I want to talk to you a little bit about something that many colleges have already begun to do, namely make their applications test optional. So you don't have to include the ACT or the SAT. I don't know that this is the way to go. I mean, it seems to me that you know, if you're worried, you know, you can improve SAT scores with coaching, and the evidence on this is mixed, by the way, as to whether that really makes much of a difference at all. But certainly the other aspects of a kid's record, much more influenced by socioeconomic status and by wealth and so on, you know, the college essay, for example, where parents can help or, you know, extracurriculars or other things, whereas the test is pretty neutral in that sense. What do you think? Well, I'm honestly a little divided and ambivalent on the testing issue, and I'm being forced to confront that ambivalence on a daily and weekly basis right now in my own family because I have a child who is uh, going into senior year and fretting the SAT. And I agree with you that a system that does not rely on a standardized test that all students take, no matter where they're coming from, whether it's private or public or urban or rural, if you're not having them all take the same thing, it's going to tend to lead to more subjective measures having a greater role, which will tend to not make make the outcomes better. By the same token, we live in fairly upper middle class suburbs of Philadelphia, and you know, every single one of my daughter's peers is enrolled in an SAT prep course. And these are not cheap. They cost a few thousand dollars. And, you know, there are lots of places in the country where students can't afford to do that. Now, can they afford to go to the library and read a a Kaplan book in the reference section and study their butts off? You know, sure, they could do that. But whether or not that is actually contributing to measuring who the the best students are going to be, I'm not sure about that exactly either. 
What I do think is true, and I, Matt Iglesias on Substack has written a lot about this in several posts, I think it is clearly the case that the push to abandon the requirement for standardized tests in college admissions is in a way a method of a lot of schools trying to fudge the numbers. The thing that got Harvard in hot water in the Supreme Court cases had to do with the fact that there was a kind of quantitative record of how students did, no matter what their ethnic or racial background. And if you don't require a standardized test taken by all of these students across the board, it becomes much easier not only to make things more subjective on getting in, but then if you try to look at the measures that were used, they're all blurry and smudged, and you can't really trace exactly why it was that, you know, as you said earlier in the segment, Mona, lo and behold, oh, the Asian students received low marks on personality, which, you know, couldn't possibly be more subjective. And only from the admissions officer. We should say, like, the alumni interviews exactly. thought they had perfectly... <laughs> fine personalities, but when the admissions officers got them, suddenly they're all boring. Right, exactly. Yeah. And and so without the, the kind of baseline quantitative measure, it becomes much, much easier for schools to pretty much game the system to craft that incoming class exactly as Megan described and what she was saying. So I guess you could say, I don't love the SAT and the ACT, but I'm hard pressed to come up with some other like substitute for it that could accomplish the same kind of thing. Again, don't make it the only thing that you look at, but really no school does that either. But it probably needs to be in the mix. And if not those tests, then we need some kind of substitute to do something similar. Right. It is interesting because the test has now been sort of caricatured as being a tool of the elites, that they can game the system, they can give their kids this boost so that they can do better. But initially, the idea behind it was that this would be an anti-elite measure, right? That a really smart kid from the boonies or from the inner city or from wherever could show their potential, even if they came from a poor school or they didn't have the grades or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's what everyone is really talking about when they bring up the injustice against the Asian applicants at Harvard, that by the standards of pure meritocratic academic achievement, Asians tend to do very well and better than many other groups. And if that is what we want to use to decide who gets into the best schools, then they should be rewarded for that. But, but, dot, 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 <laughs> then it becomes complicated. No, as Megan pointed out, no college wants a class of a thousand Frenchmen. That's true. They do want some different kinds of people when they're thinking about what kind of a class to fill out. And that even includes, and Harvard will say this, that they don't just want the top academic students. They want people with other skills and other experiences, and that's totally legitimate. Okay, Bill Galston, I know you're eager to talk about alternatives to affirmative action, but before you get to that, I want to ask you about one question that sort of swirls around all discussions of affirmative action, and it was evident in the sharp disagreement between Clarence Thomas and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, namely the whole question of stigma. So you will often hear people say, you know, well, you benefited from affirmative action. How can you then criticize it, right? And that, it seems to me, only proves the point of the people who are worried about stigma. Because 
if you have a system of one set of standards for people with one color skin and another set of standards for other people, then inevitably the person with the dark skin is always going to have to labor under that stigma. Did they get where they were by sheer talent and ability, or were they an affirmative action hire or an affirmative action admittee? Clarence Thomas feels very strongly that this is the huge problem, and Jackson uh, does not. So what are your feelings about that particular aspect of this? Well, many questions, including this one, are empirical questions masquerading as moral questions. And I would sure like to sit down with some survey research or even a focus group and find out from African-American students themselves at elite institutions, are they laboring under the sense that they've gotten to a place that they don't deserve to be, or aren't they? In other words, there's a difference between what other people think of you and what you think of yourself. And Clarence Thomas is way over on one side of that spectrum. That's all he can think about when the words affirmative action prompt him. Is he an outlier? Is he the norm? And I certainly don't know the answer to that question. Now, obviously, you don't want people to feel stigmatized, but at the same time, you want people who are capable of doing work at the highest level to be in places where they are challenged to the full extent of their abilities. What's the balance there? I genuinely don't know. I mean, there's, you know, Damon talked about his ambivalence on the question you put to him. In my case, it's ambivalence squared, but that ambivalence could be cured by evidence. Bill, I'm going to beg to differ with you here on this because I actually think this is one of those questions where data will not help us much because it is so subjective. Imagine asking an African-American student, do you feel that you're at uh, Princeton and you don't deserve to be? Nobody's going to say yes to that, even if they feel that they are not as academically prepared as some of their classmates. They're going to say, well, yeah, but that's because you know of centuries of slavery and Jim Crow, which is partly true, right? And so it's not so easy to say, you know, do you feel like you've been given something that you don't deserve? That's really not the issue. The issue is, does it encourage other people to think of you as being necessarily inferior? And does that also then bounce back on you and make you feel angry and resentful that people doubt your abilities? Well, I guess we are going to have to beg to differ here. Okay. Because I suspect strongly that there are at least some non-African American members of each entering class at elite institutions who look at others who are African-American and wonder whether they got there on pure merit. But it's a real stretch, it seems to me, to move from that to the conclusion that African-American students somehow feel stigmatized or have internalized the stigma and self-doubt. And I am really not sure whether that's true. So I am going to insist on my right to empirical ambivalence on this question. And I think 
If we continue this conversation longer, I could probably get you to confess that you don't really know the answer to that question either. So I, no, no, I'll confess it right now. I don't know the answer to that question. I merely contest the idea that it is knowable at all. I don't think you could devise a poll or anything like it that would determine the answer to that question. If it's not knowable, then what are we talking about? Can I suggest a data point that seems relevant? Okay. There is the fact that we consider it a dreadful insult to say that someone has benefited from affirmative action. That that is a firing of like Amy Wax, one of the reasons at Penn that she's under fire. Uh, as a law professor who's who's currently the, the school is currently trying to terminate her tenure is that she told a student that that student had benefited from affirmative action and that was how she'd gotten into pen and you know Mataglasis has made this point that it is this weird policy where like it is both supposed to be simultaneously necessary and also we are never supposed to say that anyone benefited from it and got in who wouldn't have gotten in otherwise and the fact that it is so stigmatized to say that does suggest that people feel that that is a bad thing um, and that they feel sensitive about it and that we recognize that that is a very sensitive thing to say. Okay, Linda. Could I offer another point of view and is probably the only person on the program who was accused of having been a beneficiary of affirmative action many times in my lifetime. I was a little bit too old to have had such programs available to me when I was entering college. But by the time I was applying to graduate school, those programs were available. And as a matter of fact, when I was admitted to UCLA, I received an affirmative action fellowship which I objected to, in which I told the English department that I objected to because I believed I was entitled to a fellowship based on my grades and my GRE scores, which I thought would have qualified me. And I was told by the head of the English department that was all fine and well, but they had only two fellowships to give to PhD students in English. And since I was eligible for this other kind of fellowship, that's what I was going to get, and I could take it or leave it. So I can tell you that didn't sit well with me. But I think there's another point that Bill is missing. And that is that if my organization, Center for Equal Opportunity, has done studies of 80 colleges and universities and looked at the incoming test scores, incoming grades, and compared them to show what effect affirmative action has had on the admissions standards of those various schools, And the sad fact is that at the most competitive schools, the top scoring Black and Latino students often score at the lowest quartile of what the white and Asian students are coming in at. And it does put them at a disadvantage. And I think, Mona, your point is the correct one. Sure, there are students who get in that are Black and Latino who could have got in under any circumstances. But when you have a huge swath of students being admitted with lower grades, lower test scores, and therefore being more likely to struggle, what you are doing is reinforcing the kinds of stereotypes that we hoped affirmative action was going to destroy. And so I think you're doing a disadvantage to those students. And as I've said, they're less likely to graduate. They are less likely to major in STEM fields or in much more competitive academic fields. And had they gone to schools where they were competing on the same footing as their Asian and white peers, I think they would have been better off. 
that is a very important point. And it's a known phenomenon. I mean, I have a, a relative who attended Johns Hopkins University, planning to be a scientist or a doctor. And in his first semester, he took physics with the students at Johns Hopkins who are, tend to be very, very strong in STEM fields. And, uh, you know, these were real superstars and he was struggling. So he decided, you know what, I'm not going to major in this. <laughs> Whereas if he had been at a different college, which was less STEM oriented and maybe less intense, he might have. So the composition of one's classmates really does make a difference in things like choice of major. Well, you know, with regard to graduation rates, uh, Megan has already informed us accurately that African-Americans and whites graduate from the ultimate elite institution, namely Harvard, at about the same rate. So we can cancel that out for purposes of the case that we're talking about, not for all institutions, but certainly Harvard's. I have a lot more to say about this issue. And just for the record, I'm not yielding an inch of the ground that I've staked out, but there's another equally important issue that I want to get to, Mona. And that is that the outcome of the Students for Fair Admissions case has been to rip the scab off all of the other preferential admissions programs that exist at places like Harvard and in many, many other elite institutions as well. I'm talking about preferences for athletes, and interestingly, seven out of the 10 athletes admitted to Harvard were white. You know, I'm talking about legacies. You got to have those fencers, Bill. It's really important. Oh, ab absolutely. <laughs> what if they were invaded by a Roman phalanx, huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that should fall under the National Defense Education Act. <laughs> we have the sons and daughters of people who went to Harvard, who are admitted at fantastically higher rate, rates than equivalent students of the same hue with equal qualifications. And believe it or not, you get even more of a boost if both of your parents went to Harvard. That's a huge gap between one parent and both parents. We have the children of faculty and staff at Harvard. And most of all, we have the children of big ticket funders. You add it all up, Three quarters of the students admitted in those four categories would not have gotten in if the normal standards pertaining to everybody else, not in those categories, had been applied to them. And so that has the effect of making Harvard's class much wider and above all, much richer than it would be if there were simply a level playing field. And so I confidently predict that the next battle zone is going to be over all of the other preferential systems in elite institutions that are justified in the name of community, but the real motive is money. Well, as a matter of fact, Bill, there's already been a complaint filed with the Department know, of Education against Harvard on these very grounds that legacies are disproportionately benefit white students. So we will see where that goes. I would just also point out that there are a number of people who are serving criminal sentences for having attempted to bribe various coaches and others to help their kids get into college, what was it called, the Varsity Blues cases, 
Whereas if the parents in those cases had simply done it the old fashioned way, that is donate a building, donate a gymnasium, whatever, that would have been perfectly legal. Yeah, but much more expensive. (laughs) Okay, much more expensive. But the point being that there is a form of bribery that goes on that ought not to be the norm. Okay, we'll leave that there for this week and turn now to the GOP field. It is July, and we are supposed to have the first debate in the GOP primaries coming up next month on Fox News. But Megan, I will start with you. Uh, Donald Trump has made noises that he may not attend. He has said very frankly, why should I show up and just let them take shots at me? And Ron DeSantis is now saying that if Trump doesn't show up, he won't show up. So will there be anyone there? <laughs> you know, for the past few cycles, we've had the, the big kids stage and the little kids stage in the early Republican debates. Right. We may just end up with the little kids stage, which would be a lot of fun because the little kids stage debates are actually in many ways more interesting. They don't have that much to lose. So they can just sort of go to town. Wait, but the RNC has imposed such strict rules that it's going to be very difficult for the little kids to get at the table at all. You have to have, you know, donations from 20 different states and you have to have polling at at least 1%. So it's going to be a challenge. Look, I think it's rational for Trump not to show up. What does he gain from it? He's the front runner. Right. I mean, it's such a weird situation, though. You have a former president who's running again. It rarely happens because why would you do that? You lost last time. You're not a good candidate. But he went there and he convinced Republican voters that he didn't actually lose. So he is now currently the front runner. He has no benefit to going on that stage. The only thing that can happen to him is that things can get worse for him. I'm not saying I admire it. I don't admire anything Donald Trump does, but I think he is making a rational decision. And similarly, DeSantis for a couple of reasons. If Trump's not there, everyone is going to gang up on DeSantis instead. And he probably doesn't gain that much from being there. In part because, I mean, one thing we should remember is that this ain't 1980. So few people watch these debates, these primary debates. They're not what they used to be for kind of name recognition, establishing credibility, etc. They are for political junkies and old people who just watch Fox News or CNN or whatever all day. And so because of that, there's not that much value if you are either the front runner or the the guy running right behind him. The value is for the lower ranked candidates. I think those who can qualify are going to show up because this is where they can actually catch some attention. If you're polling at 4% and you can go to eight, that's great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think that there will be people there. And I think actually it might be a more interesting debate without Trump because he has a kind of evil genius for dominating a stage, but he doesn't do it in any sort of productive way. He just throws stupid insults all night. And now we may actually, I don't know, get some, this is crazy, I know, but we could talk about policy. Okay, Damon, that sounds great. We could talk about policy, except (laughs) when you look at what the Republicans are actually running on, It doesn't sound much like policy. A lot of it sounds like posturing. A lot of them have made a big part of their campaigns that they will pardon Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy most prominently, but others have said the same. 
DeSantis in particular, of course, is running to Trump's right on vaccines and trans issues and abortion and immigration. Query whether that's a wise strategy. And Nikki Haley and Rick Scott seem to be running for vice president. So I don't know. Are we going to get a really interesting debate on issues? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, especially if DeSantis doesn't show up. And then, of course, uh, you know, as, as we've been talking about, the kind of high bar for minimal requirements to get on the debate stage, you could end up with basically Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Rick Scott, maybe Chris Christie. And the four of them don't disagree about that much, except how much to attack Trump. That's pretty much the extent of their disagreements, because all of them are running to sort of bring the Republican Party back to, let's call it a kind of Bush 43 Republicanism, uh, the kind of Republicanism that prevailed from 2000 to 2008 during the, the second Bush administration. That's kind of what the people who could be on the debate stage all sort of agree would be better for the Republican Party to be, but that isn't where the party is. And the evidence for that is that Trump is at above 50% in the polls and DeSantis is at about 20%, which means roughly 70 to 75% of voters want something other than that. And it's possible that that faction of the party won't be represented. Talk about watching debates for the sake of a pure political junkie getting a fix. I mean, I'll obviously watch because then I can write a post about it and come up with something. But like, this is not anything that's going to engage uh, actual voters on much of anything. I'm going to stick with you, Damon, for just a minute, because I want to drill down a little further on this whole strategy by Ron DeSantis. So you talked about the lay of the land in terms of who's supporting whom. And, you know, Trump has his whatever, his, his almost half of the likely Republican primary electorate. But DeSantis, you know, people who are Trump supporters like DeSantis, but he has made it his policy to try to get to Trump's right on all of these questions, including a ridiculous uh, video that he retweeted last week, which was an anti-gay, anti-trans sort of attack on Trump. And, you know, it just strikes me that that, first of all, it's morally bad, but beyond that, it is such a boneheaded move on DeSantis's part. Those people liked him. He didn't have to get the Trump people to like him. He had to get the non-Trump people to like him. And then he would have been a real threat to Trump. But instead, he's just trying to get even further to Trump's right. Do you agree or... Yeah, there are a couple of things to say about that. First of all, before we get to the video, uh, you know, one thing in which I think I disagree with Megan a little bit on, in a different world, it would make all the sense in the world for Ron DeSantis to be there because if he and everybody behind him is there and he does really well, he could knock a bunch of those people out of contention and DeSantis could take up their votes instead as an anti-Trump alternative 
whether it's to Trump's right or left or center or whatever it is, at least you could imagine him, you know, knocking 10 points off of all the other people, you know, two points from Haley, two from Christie, two from from Pence. And he and the next thing you know, he's up to 30. And now we have a real race. But DeSantis doesn't seem to want to do that. And that comes to this crazy video. The campaign retweeted this video. And if this were anything like a normal campaign, what you would have expected is within a few hours or maybe a day later, the campaign would say this was a mistake. An intern redid that. This is not professional. We don't stand with it. But no, after several days of this uh, creating a big buzz in the media, DeSantis himself comes out and is like, oh, yeah, sure. That's great. We love that stuff. This video is straight out of the digital fever swamps. There is a sub-faction of the far right, and I do mean far, like kind of quasi-fascist right, that really loves to zing the United States for being a feminized totally unserious kind of place and mixing it with a bizarre homoerotic imagery that favors like oiled up bodybuilding men with no shirts on. And, And then like that video also included quick cuts of like DeSantis likened to Christian Bale, an American psycho, like as if he's like, you know, a serial killer. He's a murderer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and, like, it it really was bizarre. Now, most Americans, even I will venture to say in 2023, would look at that video and go, what in God's name is this insanity? Like they wouldn't even know enough to dislike it. They would just see it as a kind of aesthetic chaos there before them. But it's like it shows that DeSantis is appealing to a tiny niche of the far right, the kind of people, frankly, who Trump was boosting at the Charlottesville rally back in 2017, the kind of kind of quasi neo-Nazi fascistic far right who combines, again, a kind of far right political program with a highly toxic kind of humor and homoeroticism in a way that appeals to really nobody else except for them. But that's like DeSantis feels like if I get the 1% of the Republican base who's that, then I'll somehow go around, I'll pass Trump on the right shoulder and come out ahead. I would love to sit down with some of the people on his team saying, what the hell do you people think you're doing? I genuinely don't understand it. He was running more like 30% before he launched his campaign. Now he's at 20 and seemingly to sink even lower than that. And to think that a video like that would contribute to anything other than floundering further, I don't understand it at all. It baffles me. Bill, one of the um, things that DeSantis tries to say is that he is the more electable alternative to Trump. He'll never criticize Trump. In fact, he's really sort of oleaginous toward him. But he does say, you know, that he's younger, he's more electable. But all of his moves since he started running have made him arguably less electable, right? I mean, his stance on vaccines, on abortion, you know, that Florida had a 20-week ban, which was sort of the sweet spot. And now he's signed a six-week ban, which is not going to go down well with most voters. His efforts to get the nomination have undermined his own argument about electability. Well, I have been 
scanning survey research relentlessly for evidence that DeSantis is more electable than Trump. I can't find it. You know, if anything, the reverse may be the case. I mean, there's not a big difference because so much of this is locked in along partisan lines. But the claim that he's the more electable of the two was always an assertion in search of evidence. And now I think it's an assertion contrary to the evidence. So I think we can put that aside as, you know, as a DeSantis fantasy at this point. But I want to take this discussion in a different direction, if I may, and just remind everybody that we are not talking about a single national election for the Republican primary. We're talking about a sequence of state elections. And I just want to make two points. Number one, if Donald Trump wins in both Iowa and New Hampshire, he will be the Republican nominee. I don't care what happens after that. He will be the Republican nominee. His momentum for the nomination will be irresistible. There is only one interesting story that I can tell that produces a different result. And it goes like this. We're in Iowa. It's January. And suddenly, Tim Scott catches fire because people decide they like him, which most people do after spending some time with him. They like him. And that, like Reagan, he's a conservative, but he's not angry about it. Conservatism with a smile, et cetera. He's not criticizing anybody else or not much. He's just talking about his own merits and why he would be a good nominee for the Republican Party. Lo and behold, he comes in second in Iowa, ahead of DeSantis. At that point, I've lived through this because the same thing happened to me and my candidate, Walter Mondale, in Iowa in 1984. Mondale got 48% of the vote. Gary Hart came in second with 17%. And suddenly, there was a new dynamic, a new narrative, a new sense of possibilities. And people of a certain age will remember what happened next in New Hampshire. That is the only interesting story that I can tell about the Republican primary, because if someone not named DeSantis doesn't catch fire, then I don't see where the dynamic for a nominee other than Trump can possibly materialize. Linda, I agree with everything that Bill just said, and I don't rule out the possibility, actually, that Tim Scott could catch fire in Iowa. He's well-suited to that state. So stranger things have happened. But I want to um, push back a little bit on Damon's point about the other candidates being Reaganite, or if not Reaganite, then trying to return a level of um, normality to the Republican Party. Because one of the bizarre things that you find when you look at what these candidates are talking about on the stump One thing they all seem to come back to is they all want to declare war on Mexico. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Donald Trump wants to impose a naval blockade. Let's invade. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You know, and so DeSantis, Scott, Haley, Ramaswamy, and Pence, they're all for using military force against drug peddler, drug dealers uh, in Mexico, you know, sending our special forces or God knows, maybe the Marines. What do you make of that? Well, I think Chris Christie has a slightly different approach. Oh, no, I didn't mean absolutely all of them. I meant a bunch of them. But Christie wants to send troops to the border to try to interdict 
drugs. I don't know how that will work out. I don't know if uh, posse comitatus would end up being invoked, which says that you can't use the U.S. military in domestic operations. I don't know. What I will say is that this notion that we can somehow invade our neighbor to the South, we did that once before. I mean, that's why I'm an American today. My family was in New Mexico, which was uh, at the time part of Mexico. The United States invaded. My great-great-great-uncle ended up turning over the territory of New Mexico to the Americans, and thus I am an American today and very pleased about it. However, I don't... Thank you for that, that. Linda, by the way. (laughs) I I don't, by the way, think it was a, a great war. And, you know, a lot of people, including Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, were opposed to the war with Mexico. I don't think we need or want to do that. I do think we have to get serious and try, you know, to use diplomatic means and carrots as well as sticks against Mexico in terms of they're doing a better job. Mexico still has a huge problem with corruption, and there is no question that the drugs are coming through our southern border and that they are inflicting terrible harm. It's not the people who are coming here. It's not the people who want to work as farm workers or construction workers and and contribute uh, to the American economy. But the drugs that are flowing through the border are a problem. But this is not the way to do it. And I think we would become a pariah in the world if we decided to start bombing uh, cartel sites uh, in Mexico. I think that And also forfeiting the cooperation of the Mexican government with us on limiting cross-border incursions. Yeah, but, you know, it makes for a good soundbite. I mean, it's just another way of beating up on the Mexicans, which seems to be the Republican Party's answer to everything when they get in trouble. And what is so strange about that is Mexican-Americans are increasingly turning to the Republican Party as a place they feel comfortable. So I don't quite understand the dynamics here. But I think it's a very bad idea. All right. With that, we will turn to our third segment, our highlight or low light of the week. And we'll start with Megan McArdle. My low light of the week is a little personal, but there was a carjacking in front of a store a couple blocks from me. This is obviously not relevant to most of our listeners. But I will say I think it is relevant to residents of Washington, D.C., because unlike other cities, D.C. is still experiencing not just high but rising rates of violent crime since the pandemic. There are a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that we have an incredibly progressive appellate court. It's extremely difficult to go after people for gun crime, for carrying guns illegally. And we just have a lot of enforcement issues. But whatever that is, I'm, I'm really worried about my city because um, it is what killed cities in the 60s and 70s in the United States. And I'm afraid that D.C. has not yet learned the lesson that, that you need to stop it sooner rather than later. Okay, thank you. And I hope you're safe. Bill Galston. Okay, first of all, in the interests of the, of the show as a whole, I do want to correct the record uh, because... I have looked at Tim Scott's official statement on national television about the use of U.S. troops. And as far as I can tell, he has never said that he wants to deploy them south of the border. He has said that he wants to deploy them at the border. That's a distinction with a big difference. And I'm not saying that's a great idea, nor am I a card-carrying member of the Tim Scott for the Republican nomination (laughs) group. But I do think there's a distinction 
between what he has said and what some of the even crazier people have said. My highlight of the week is a very interesting survey done by an outfit called Echelon Insights. It's their monthly survey, and I learned an enormous amount that I should have known about the U.S. electorate. But here are some of the highlights. Only a quarter of U.S. households have children under the age of 18 in the home. If you're wondering why it's hard politically to get traction, you know, for children-oriented programs, I think that one statistic will be enlightening. Only 44% of the electorate is married, 44%. And if you're talking about people under the age of 50, but over the age of 30, it's even lower. I mean, only 37% of voters aged 30 to 39 are married. This is amazing. At least I find it amazing. Three quarters of U.S. households have no one who has ever seen military service. No one. And finally, an intergenerational stat that absolutely fascinated me. If you're an old fogey like me, over age 65, in my case, well over age 65, three quarters of my cohort are willing to subscribe to the proposition that the United States is the greatest nation in the world. By the time you get to 18 to 29-year-olds, it's 47%, and an equal number, 47%, flatly disagree with the proposition. So it is clear that the events of the past two decades have taken their toll on national self-confidence, with a particular impact being felt by the younger voters. What this means for the future, I don't know. If it's a goad to make the country better, that's great. If it means that they will sort of sigh and resign themselves to a country that's imperfect, then not so great. Interesting. Thank you. Linda. Well, I'm going to return to Ron DeSantis for my low light of the week. And it has to do with a law that was passed with his backing and has now gone into effect on July 1st, which creates felonies for both the employers of and the undocumented workers themselves in Florida. It's a very draconian law. It essentially threatens business licenses for any company that employs undocumented people. And this is a huge problem in a state like Florida. As of 2019, there were three quarters of a million undocumented people living in Florida. There are more than that now. It's probably close to a million living in and many of them working in Florida. And they occupy jobs that are absolutely vital to the state, including in agriculture and in construction. And the law went into effect, as I said, on July 1st. There's an article about it that appeared in the Wall Street Journal entitled Migrant Workers Flee Florida as New Immigration Law Takes Effect. And what it shows is that employers are finding half of their workforce disappearing virtually overnight uh, in the construction industry and in the agricultural industry, because if they end up getting caught working, they end up being felons. And so they're moving, many of them moving north to states that do not have such draconian laws. And it could end up costing the state of Florida big time. I don't think it's going to help 
Ron DeSantis in the long run, even in his bid for the presidency. And it's certainly going to hurt the state that he leads. Arguably, the cost of produce around the eastern half of the country will also increase, right? Oranges will start rotting. If you like orange juice, you may not be able to find it uh, in a few months. Oh, interesting. Okay, Damon Linker. Well, I'm just going to give as a highlight of the best essay that I've read over the last week. This is by Connor Friedersdorf in The Atlantic, titled The Hypocrisy of Mandatory Diversity Statements. And it really, the, the main thread of the piece, which is a reported piece focusing mainly on the University of California system of public universities, is that requiring candidates for jobs in universities to sign mandatory uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion statements are actually profoundly anti diversity because it excludes from these jobs people who for a range of moral, political, religious reasons can't in good conscience affirm the principles in the statement. You end up creating spaces in civil society that are actually less diverse by many measures. So uh, again, a kind of classic argument, but uh, very well written, well argued, and with good reporting from Connor Friedersdorf in The Atlantic. Thanks. I will just add to that that Matt Iglesias made a similar point in an essay on this topic. He said, I think professors at top universities face a conceptual problem in that they want to affirm values like diversity, equity, and inclusion, But the whole point of top universities is to be elitist, hierarchical, and exclusionary. (laughs) Yeah, that was a a great post. All right. Um, Before turning to my low light of the week, I just wanted to uh, make one other point that I forgot to mention in our discussion of affirmative action, namely that one hopes that one response to this Supreme Court decision will be a greater focus on the pipeline, the broken pipeline that is in the lower grades where so many African-American and Hispanic kids now attend failing schools. And uh, with more emphasis on phonics, with more emphasis on alternatives, charters, things that work, hopefully we can get more students better prepared for life in every way. Um, I would cite as a lowlight the action by the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, which has suspended Professor Michael Joyner and told him that he cannot speak to journalists even in his personal capacity, quote, failed to communicate in accordance with prescribed messaging. So he has been punished for criticizing, it, it gets better. What was his offense? He was criticizing the National Institutes of Health for dragging its feet on permitting the use of convalescent plasma for COVID-19 sufferers back during the pandemic. And this was not the Mayo Clinic's approved messaging. And so they have shut him down. And they are a perfect example of uh, an all-too-common tendency in our society to just think that silencing people is the best way to, uh, I don't know, ensure something. Certainly, it is not helpful for the search for truth, which is what medicine and science are supposed to be about. And by the way, also criticizing your government is supposed to be something America is about. So demerits to uh, the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine all around. And if you want to read more about it, the FIRE Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression has a long 
post about this. And with that, I would like to thank all of our usual panelists, our guest, Megan McArdle, this week. The podcast is produced by Katie Cooper. Our sound engineer is Aaron Keene. And we will return next week as every week.